In the 1800s, the first wave of Chinese migrants made their way to the U.S. We're talking over 300,000 people crossing the Pacific. A couple thousand ended up in a small town in Oregon called John Day, a town named after an American explorer. So the biggest thing that brought them in was gold mining. So gold was discovered here in 1862. And right behind the white miners, all the Chinese were coming in and falling in behind them. At the time, John Day had one of the largest mining areas in the state of Oregon. But among the migrants were two entrepreneurial guys, Ng Doc Hay and Long On. They didn't make the journey to be laborers. They wanted to capitalize off of the boom and run a business. In 1888, they found their business to run together. It was named Kamwa Chung and Company, a name that translates to Golden Flower of Prosperity or Golden Chinese Outpost. There's a divide in the Chinese world, like which one's correct. It's like, well, as far as we're concerned, they're both correct. At Kamwa Chung, Lung On and Doc Hay sold traditional Chinese medicines and really made it into a one-stop shop, shelf stocked with all types of herbs and canned goods. And even today, almost 80 years since the last time Kamwa Chung was open, the shelves are still stocked exactly as they were back then. The store remains completely untouched, from the herbs and jars on the walls to the orange Doc Hay planned to eat on his counter. It just petrified in place. So it still looks like an orange. It still looks like grapefruit. There's still um, pomegranates. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're going to John Day Orton to see the time capsule that is the Kamwa Chung and Company Museum and hear the story of the friends who made Kamwa Chung what it was. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Kamwa Chung kind of looks like a two-story fortress sitting in the middle of a park. There's a little old front porch. It's a stone facade outside with a tin roof uh, covering it. And it is painted green with red trim on the sides. This is Don Merritt. He's the museum curator for Oregon State Parks and the manager of the Kamwa Chung and Company Museum. And when you open up the door, um, everyone, their first words out of their mouth is, 
Wow. Everything inside of Cam Wah Chung is exactly as its co-owner, Ng Doc Hay, left it. You still see products from the 1940s. So you're still seeing all the cereal. You're seeing canned goods. You're seeing canned marshmallows. You're seeing little medicine. You're seeing herbs in the apothecary side and still in all their boxes and their tins, little medicine jars. Their ingredients that they use for their herbal practice, different plants. People ask all the time, it's like, well, what's the number one artifact? It's like, it's really the nature of the building itself. Because of our dry climate here in Eastern Oregon, and everything was locked up in the dark, it was perfect conditions for long-term storage. So everything is perfectly preserved. This preservation was accidental, but we'll get to that later. First, we need to rewind the clock even further. At its peak, John Day had the largest Chinese community in Eastern Oregon, numbering between five and 600 residents. Cam Wah Chung provided a sense of comfort for the migrants amid a brewing backlash. You see, initially, Chinese migrants were welcomed into the American West. The California gold rush created a huge need for labor. And the Chinese migrants built railroads and worked in mines throughout the American West. But, and tell me if you heard this before, as Chinese migrants came in droves and found some level of success, some American workers began to see them as a threat. This anti-Chinese sentiment climaxed with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, banning entry into the United States for the vast majority of Chinese people, with exceptions for folks like diplomats and merchants. But in John Day, Oregon, the life of the Chinese immigrants was decent, especially when compared to the rest of the country. It really wasn't as severe as in other places because the Chinese provide so much good services and to the economy that they were not as treated as violently as in some other areas. And so they were actually a lot more accepting of the Chinese here. Though a lot of Chinese workers were in the mines and building railroads, that wasn't the case for all of them. In 1885, Lung An and Ng Doc arrived in John Day. Don tells me he believes the Friends made it past the Chinese Exclusion Act because they identified themselves as merchants. But both had distinctive skills. Long On was the real businessman. He was very smart. He was an entrepreneur. Anything that can make him money, he was involved with. So he owned multiple businesses or co-owned other businesses. He owned stock. He owned racehorses that he gambled with. He owned rental properties. He was an astute gambler, so he gambled a lot. He was into bootlegging during Prohibition. He was, like I said, anything that was making him money, he was involved with. Doc Hay's specialty was healing. In 2017, professors from universities in Hong Kong, Beijing, and Taiwan paid a visit to Cam Wah Chung and assessed Doc Hay's methods. And they have done research over a couple decades, and they all agree that Doc Hay probably learned the trade in China, and developed it and refined it once he got here to the United States. But what everyone agrees on is he is an enigma, Doc Hay was. He was not your typical Chinese medicine doctor because he was developing formulas and treatments that they'd never heard of before. So he was naturally gifted, they believe. One of the ailments Doc Hay was known for treating was tetanus, something we don't have a cure for till this day. The way it's handled is doctors focus on treating the symptoms until the toxin resolves. This is something Doc Hay was doing over a hundred years ago. 
He was very well known for treating that because if he got tetanus, a lot of times he would just pass away. Or if you get gangrene from an infection, you could lose a limb or your life. And around here, other doctors would say, well, there's nothing we can do. Either go home, be comfortable. You'll probably pass away in a couple of weeks. Or a couple of them said, well, if you go to Doc K, he may be able to do something. We're not sure. Once Doc K started getting these patients, he was able to develop his own formulas, treat them, and he was very successful to the point to where everyone was now coming to Doc K to have treatment. Doc Hay and Long On both lived at Kam Chung, but they wouldn't be the only ones. As the 1800s came to a close, more and more of the migrants who were already in the U.S. started to make their way to Oregon for the mines around John Day. Long On saw another business opportunity. He turned a wing of Kam Chung into a boarding house. And at that point, Long On was charging five cents per person, four people per bed. And these beds are not much bigger to hold two people at most in today's age. And so he was cramming four people onto a bed, and there's four beds in that bunk room. And he was making a lot of money doing that. The store's main customer base was the Chinese community. But in the first decade of the 1900s, the Chinese population around John Day started to taper off. And that's when Lung On and Doc Hay started advertising to the white community. With white dollars also flowing in, the store really took off. And once that started happening, um, they started getting business, but what the one thing that really kicked it off is that they offered free candy to all the kids and women that would stop by. The other store did not do that. And so if a child was sent to the store and say, hey, can you pick up groceries? They went to Camel Chung because they can get free candy there. But with success came some risk. Remember, this is a period where Chinese migrants are especially wary of anti-Chinese sentiment. Doc Hay and Lung On didn't want it to get out just how successful they were. And I learned of this when I tried to find out how they were able to manage such a large corporation on their own. We believe that he probably did hire a couple of employees to help out with the business, but it, it, it is so hidden in there because they weren't, because the exclusion that was still invented until 1943 and they did not want to push it too hard that they were being very successful. So I think they tried to hide some facts, like how many employees. At this point, things were going pretty great for Long On and Doc Hay. The store was thriving, the money was flowing, and they were making a name for themselves in the community. But then in 1940, Long On had a health scare. December of that year, he started not feeling very well, and it turned out that he was actually having a massive heart attack. At this point, knowing he's going to die soon, Lung On started working on a will and intended to leave his estate to his daughter back in China. I should mention, this estate was valued at about 90000 in 1940, which today is around $1.6 million. But U.S. and China relations weren't so good, so as Lung On was working on his will, he was told that his daughter couldn't be found. So instead, before he passed, he left everything to his friend, Doc Hay. Without his close friend, Doc Hay had a tough time running the store. They were very good friends. Um, they lived together for 50 years. And he was very depressed. He was to the very depressed where he started drinking heavily. He started smoking a lot. And then one of his relatives, a nephew by the name of Bob Waugh, who was living in Idaho at the time, was like, well, I'll stop in and help you out. Once he had his nephew's help, Doc Hay was able to focus again on his medicine. A 
few years later, in 1948, Doc Hay had his own accident in the store where he broke his hip. There wasn't any medical services in the area that could help him the way he needed it, so he was sent off to Portland. Doc Hay locked up the store and went off to get the medical care. And there they fix his hip, but there was medical complications, including pneumonia. So he was unable to return, so they ended up putting him into a nursing home. And so that is where Doc Hay stayed for the rest of his life for another four years until 1952. In 1952, Doc Hay passed away from a brain aneurysm, and his store, which he'd always intended to return to, remained sealed up. In his will, Doc Hay left everything to his nephew, Bob Waugh. But Bob wasn't so into the idea of running a business after all and decided he didn't want to run the place on his own. Rather than take over, he sold the property to the town of John Day in 1958. At that time, the town was building a park in the area around Kamwa Chung, and it wouldn't be until 10 years later, in 1968, that the town decided to move forward in demolishing the place. So they said, well, let's, before we tear it down, let's go ahead and take a look inside of it, see what's there. So they opened up the door. That's when they saw what they saw, and they came back and decided, we're going to make this a museum and just incorporate it as a part of the city park at that point. Cam Wah Chung is a real-life time capsule to the late 19th and early 20th century. Lung On and Doc Hay didn't really change much of the interior from its old days, and of course, Doc Hay thought he'd be coming back after his hip heel. So everything was still as it should be for a Chinese apothecary and general store. But as the town decided to make the place a museum, they had to check in with experts to see what was worth keeping. And so they actually contacted a lot of different peoples, uh, including the Oregon Historical Society, and then they contacted Chinese experts to see what they had to see if this is something important enough to save. And everyone in the Chinese community came here and said, oh, you have to save this. Because we have the largest intact historical collection of late 19th and early 20th century Chinese documents, at least in North America, So the town spent some money renovating the building's exterior and on some conservation treatments on the more dilapidated and fragile artifacts. After the work was done, Kamwa Chung & Company was opened as a museum in 1975. After a few decades, the town just couldn't maintain an artifact as large as Kamwa Chung & Company, so the state took it over. But even the state couldn't keep up. There was just so much stuff. So the community rallied together to get Kamwa Chung a higher historical status. And in 2006, it officially became a national landmark. Kamwa Chung was a staple then, and it's a staple now, just in a different way. If you were visiting John Day 100 years ago, you probably would stop by Kamwa Chung to pick up a few things. Today, if you Google things to do in John Day, Kamwa Chung is the first, or one of the first things you'll see. Time and the demographics of the area may have changed, but if there's one thing that has remained the same, it's Kamwa Chung and Company. In-person tours of Kamwa Chung are offered May 1st through October 31st and during Oregon Spring Break towards the end of March. But that isn't your only way of seeing Kamwa Chung. They also offer a virtual tour, which we'll link to in the show notes. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. Our production team includes... Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney, Johanna Mayer. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tindall. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. 
you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And my name is Baudelaire. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.